And I'm going to ask God to soften our hearts towards his word. And he would open up our minds, and he would do for us today what only he can do. And I want to warn you, because today we're studying the letter to the church at Pergamos. It was a church there in modern-day Turkey, and they loved Jesus, and they stood for Jesus, but there were some doctrinal things that had crept into the church that were inaccurate, they were impure, and they were leading the church down the wrong road. And so when Jesus wrote this letter to Pergamos, he said, guys, I see you. I love you. I'm proud of you. Where you live is not easy. You guys live in a hard city, a hard time. I recognize that. And he said, keep going. Keep running hard after me. And then he called them out, though, and said, there are some things in your life that are out of congruency right now. You need to recalibrate. And so I warn you at the beginning, this is one of those big girl, kind of big boy messages where the Lord's going to get in your face today. But he does so because he loves you, because he has the best intention for you. And so when we pray right now, we're going to ask God to search our heart and see if there be any wicked way in us and then lead us in the way everlasting. It's a very simple prayer, but we're going to let God have his way. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we do just that? Father, we submit to you because you're God. You know all. To not submit to you would be complete foolishness. To look to our own abilities, our own finite knowledge, our own experiences, our own things that we have come to know, and to say that we're God would be foolish. And so instead, Lord, we submit to you and ask that you would be honored in this time of Bible study, that, Lord, you'd be honored in this time of fellowship, this time of worship, this time of prayer, and, Lord, at the end of the service, a time of communion. Would you be honored in that? Even at the beginning of the service, would you soften our hearts and forgive us of our sins? If you're honest here, you would say there is sin in your life. There's things that are just out of order. You know it. Maybe the Holy Spirit would put his finger on things right now because he loves you. And Jesus, we would echo that prayer. Search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us and then lead us in the way everlasting. I pray, Lord, that we would find comfort and grace in your eyes today. I submit myself to you, Lord, as the teacher asking for you, Lord, to be honored in what we do to use me, Lord, for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Look at Revelation 2, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the white stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus is writing this letter to the seven churches in the year 100 AD 
to the gospel writer, John. And he's receiving this letter to then give to the churches because each church is doing their best to do what God has called them to do. But even when you do your best, do you not need to get your heart checked? Do you not need to check in with the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Is there anything wonky in me, anything out of line? And if you're honest, on any given day, there are things that have gone astray, things that have gone cold. And Jesus examines these churches. I told you guys this a couple weeks ago. These letters would be specific to them, Ephesus, Thyatira, Pergamos. They needed a report card, but it would also be profitable corporately to the rest of the church. Everybody could glean from this, but maybe this is the way I read it. It's also specifically and uniquely designed for you and me today. When we read these letters, it's easy to look at Pergamos and be like, Pergamos, what are you doing? You know, what were they all about? And yet the Lord will say, I got them. What does this say to you? How do I want to adjust in your life? Because here's the deal. I don't know if you guys realize this, but the church is the hope of the world, the local church. You guys and we guys and those guys and them guys. We're the hope of the, of the local, of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And so Jesus commits himself to the church and he asks, uh-oh, for you and I to commit ourselves to him. How many guys are stoked that Jesus has committed to the church? Oh, yeah. oh you gotta, gotta figure that out. I'm excited. I mean, I'm so excited. And yet he says, I want this to be mutual. Matter of fact, the Bible uses the picture of marriage as a commitment. It's supposed to be forever. And Jesus says, I'm going to commit to you. I'm the groom, and you're my bride. That's, what, that's why it's very important. That's why marriage is so important. Because God says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. But I want you to commit your ways to me in the exact same fashion. I want you to be available to me in your entire life. And God's going to take your life even today, and he's going to move you where he wants to move you. This is important. Because Jesus has chosen to use you and me for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm excited about Jesus. I believe in him. He's coming soon. His kingdom is being built. And sometimes I get, the, I get it twisted and I think, well, Jesus is going to do it. I'm just going to sit back and watch. And now you see on purpose, Jesus says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is why it's so important for us, each and every one of us to do our job. Imagine if I didn't, sh- if I didn't show up today and I didn't do my job. Would that be awkward for you guys? Where's Luke at? He didn't want to do it today. You know, he, he stayed home like, woo, whoops. So tomorrow we all have jobs to do in Jesus' name, Monday through Saturday. And he wants you to whew, take that breath and step into his calling and be the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let me give you one illustration from the Old, or New Testament that I love. It's in Acts chapter 8. And Philip is in Samaria. And while he's in Samaria, he's the pastor of a megachurch. Things are going good. And God tells him, I want you to leave that megachurch, go to the desert, and you're going to meet one man who's on his way to Africa. He goes there obediently. Okay, you sure you want me to? This is what God wants you to do. So he walks to the Gaza Strip there, meets a man on his way to Africa, tells him the gospel, baptizes him, and sends him back to Ethiopia, northern Africa there, where first century churches were started by this guy. Here's the point. Philip could have just stayed where he was comfortable, where things were going good, but instead he was obedient to impact one person. What if God wants to use your life in your grandson's experience, in your grandson's life? What if God wants to use you to impact the people you're around right now, or maybe a perfect stranger? That's why when we study this portion of scripture and find out what God is saying to the church, it helps us to actually be the church and not just go to church. Now, let me get your attention before you tune me out here. Jesus, in each one of these letters, scans the church first. It's like a little radar, right? And he, and he sees the church. He's like, okay, I see what's going on. And then when he begins his address to each church, he self-identifies himself exactly what they need to hear. 
to the church at Ephesus. We studied it two weeks ago. He said, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and walks in the midst of the lampstands. Okay, the seven stars were the pastors and the seven lampstands were the churches. And Jesus says, guess what, guys? I'm at church because the church at Ephesus was doing church and it forgot who Jesus was. They forgot their love. And he's like, guess what? I'm right here. I know you forgot me, but I didn't forget you. And Jesus reminded them that it's all about him. The second church was Smyrna. They were the persecuted church. They were getting bullied. They were getting killed and persecuted. And Jesus self-identifies and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm God. I was here the beginning, and I'll be here at the end. And then he went on to say, and I was killed, and now I live. Jesus looked at that church right then and there and said, guys, I know what you're going through. I'm actually sovereign over it, and I've been murdered myself, and I now live. He gave them through his word, self-identifying what they needed to hear. Now listen up, because when he talks to the church at Pergamos, he says, it's me, Jesus, the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. He calls himself the one with the two-edged sword. Now, what's a two-edged sword, guys? The Word of God. You guys all know that, the Bible. The Bible calls itself a sharp two-edged sword. It's able to discern thoughts and intentions and divide all kinds of things and show us what we can't see for ourselves. So he says to the Pergamos church, man, you guys got it twisted. You believe things that Balaam taught you. You got the Nicolaitans running things. Here's what I want you guys to know about me. You need to get back in the Word. It's a very simple truth. You need to get back in the word because the things you're doing, even in my name, aren't what I would do in my name. And if you get back in the word, you'll see the truth and be able to correct your errors. Don't raise your hand too high. But after becoming a Christian, have you walked in error since then? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. 12 of you. 12 of you. The rest of you are just liars. That's all right. We get it twisted, and the way to find ourselves writing our lives is by submitting once again to God's Word. It's really not that hard to do. The problem is, when you read God's Word, there's parts of your flesh that don't like it. There's parts of your flesh that say, ah, I don't know if I like that, and that's convicting, that's confusing, that disrupts my whole flow. And so the question is then, what are you going to do? It's kind of like petting a cat backwards. You ever pet a cat backwards? Man, that cat's like, what are you doing? You ever try it? No, don't try it. But if you pet a cat backwards, the easiest way to fix it is just to turn the cat around. Just keep, you know, and when you get into the word, if you feel like it's rubbing you the wrong way, I don't like the way that tasted. I don't like the way that made me feel. I'm just going to let you know, you're the one who needs to adjust every single time. One of the presidents, I think it was uh, Thomas Jefferson, would read the scriptures and he would actually take a knife and he would cut out the portions he didn't like and just remove them from the book because he didn't want to adjust his life. He's like, well, that doesn't, I don't, know, I don't appreciate that. And so he would change God's word instead of, listen, changing his life. Jesus shows up and says, no, you're the church. Your lifestyle must change if it's incongruent to my mandate. That's what the message to the church is here today. And so when Jesus tells the Ephesus church, I'm at church, and when he tells the Smyrna church, I know what it's like to be persecuted, and he tells the compromising church, I'm the word of God. This is where you need to go. I think it's so refreshing. This is so cool because Jesus knows exactly what you need to hear right now, and he is the answer to your current problem. Anybody got any current problems right now? Any, any situation going on in your life? I just want you guys to know something, okay? Jesus is the answer. And he would approach you, even in your own private life, or maybe tonight, and say, you know what I am for you? I'm the peace you're looking for. You're looking for peace. I know it. I, I, I'm the freedom you're looking for. You're looking for freedom. I'm the purpose you're looking for. I'm the counsel you're looking for. What did you come into church here looking for? 
What, was, what were you looking for? What are you fighting for Monday through Saturday? You're trying to find in your life, trying to find some reprieve, trying to find some happiness, trying to find some forgiveness. Did you know that everything you're looking for right now is found in Jesus Christ? And as he scans your heart, bloop, okay, I'm not messing with you. You're full of need. Okay, tomorrow morning you're gonna wake up and you're gonna be all messed up. Oh, I need some water. You know, I need food and I need makeup. You know, I need help. You know, I need all this stuff. Don't you wake up all needy, all messed up? And then all day long you need. And Jesus says, "Hey, look to me." As a matter of fact, in the next four churches, we're gonna see him adjust his self-address to meet the very needs of that church. Before I move to. Newport many, many years ago, about 20 years ago, I had a car that was full of Christian stickers, and one of them was, Jesus is the answer. Just said, Jesus is the answer. I remember I was getting gas at the Astro gas station in Ashland, and this guy said, what's the question, bro? You know, I was like, what? no, he's talking about, your sticker says Jesus is the answer. What's the question? You know, I was like, anyways, just fill, fill it up, bro, fill it up. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. He's the answer. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Pergamos. I don't have time to go into this, and you're not going to remember it anyways, uh, but be that as it may, Pergamos was a banging city in that day. It was the Las Vegas of Asia Minor. Okay? It was actually the capital city of Asia Minor in Rome, in, in that area. This place was full of all kinds of pagan ideology, idolatry. There was immoral practices going on, prostitution and worship. There was all kinds of advancements in the New Ageism. They had sciences and arts, and they had water therapy, and they had music therapy, and they had chambers you would go in, and people would come from all over the world seeking the latest, newest improvements, and sick people would actually come. They had a snake temple where you would go in if you were sick, and they believed in this one particular God. I can't pronounce his name, but it's where we get our English word scalpel. It's actually where they derive the medical serpent stick you'll see on the back of ambulances with the pole and the stick. And additionally, Numbers 21, it all comes from this era. And these people would come and they would come to Pergamos and they would go into this temple and spend the night in there laying on the floor and it was full of snakes. And the hope was is that the snake god, I can't pronounce it, it's like something like that. This, this, if a snake would like touch you or crawl over you, that the snake god was having favor on you, which is totally not true. And this snake god, you know, I'm healed and you wouldn't be healed. And you all know New Testament and even the Old Testament that serpents aren't necessarily something you want to mess with, you know. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, Jesus tells the church, I see what's going on. I see Antipas died there. Proud of you guys. And twice in one verse, he says, Satan dwells right where you guys are at. Now just imagine what that was like. The Pergamos church, they got all these things going against them. Jesus sees the plight to let their light shine. He understands. But then Jesus, and this is really important. I need to say it before it loses my, my mind. Before you lose your mind. I forgot. I'm just kidding. And so Jesus addresses this church because it wouldn't be easy to be them. And one of the mistakes we make when life gets hard, when something happens to you and you're hurt, one of the mistakes we make is we give ourselves a license for foolishness. Life's tough for me. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I just got cancer. I, I just got fired. I just got dumped. And so oftentimes in our pain, re real pain, those are all real issues, we'll give ourselves a license for foolishness. Well, I'm going to go sin a little bit. I'm going to go get crazy because, man, that's what I, Careful. This is a problem with each and every one of us. And God says, hey, Pergamos, I see what's going on. Man, you guys are in Satan's throne. That's where you're at. But you have the doctrine of Balaam. You have the Nicolaitans. You guys are doing stuff. You're sexual immorality. You're, you're eating stuff that's sacrificed to idols in, in a bad way, worse than what Paul addressed in, in 1 Corinthians, different than that. And so Jesus loves this church and he loves this town so much 
that he gives to them this heartfelt offer. I'm going to say it again. He gives to them this heartfelt offer to repent. Did you guys know that repentance is a gift? God sees you and your mistakes. Even today, if you came in here, you're like, oh, I hope nobody saw that. I hope, hope that's not recorded, and I hope nobody searches my internet. I hope, you know, hope this, and I hope, hope nobody asks that question. And the Lord says, I just want to forgive you. I just want to forgive you. But you've got to turn the cat around. You've got to adjust. Repentance means to think differently, and if you think differently, you'll actually act differently. It's just the way it works. If you think wrong, bad doctrine, you'll act wrong. If you look at God's word, and you swallow it, okay, okay, that's what it says. Then you'll change your behavior. Belief always determines behavior, which, by the way, is kind of scary. If you ever see yourself acting a fool, that's behavior. It means you believed a lie. You did something wrong. You crossed the tracks. You, you compromised. You did something in your belief system that led to a behavior that you need to now today, by God's grace, repent of. He offers you that gift. Let me just say one more thing about Pergamos, and this will help unpack the rest of the study. Pergamos literally means marriage. Pergamos, that's where we would get our word uh, polygamy or monogamy or uh, bigamy, all marriage-related terms. So Pergamos, and the idea here at the Pergamos church is that there was a union, a marriage, okay? Two unions within this church that were wrong. Number one, there was a union of church and state, there was things that they had done politically that Jesus wasn't impressed with. They were a church, and there should be a separation between church and state. I don't have a whole time to develop that thought. I think it's important in today's day. Maybe email me, and I'll tell you what I mean. But secondly, there was unions within the church at Pergamos, marriages, that were unholy. There were relationships within the church based on the teaching of Balaam that led to sexual adultery and idolatry and sexual immorality that caused the church to be weakened. And Jesus said... Pergamos. I'm glad you're a Christian. That's so cool. I'm glad you still have the fish on your car. You still wear the Jesus' real sweatshirt. That's legit. That's what he said. But there's some compromise in your doctrine that is leading to things you shouldn't be doing. We've all experienced this in our life. And let me just make sure you hear me loud and clear. The Bible commands, and the Bible illustrates, and the Bible leads us in all things sexual. It tells us what's right, and it tells us what's wrong. Can I get an amen? It tells us, it commands and exemplifies, and I'm just going to make it so simple for you guys to hear this today. The Bible actually only commands one heterosexual relationship that is from God for us to enjoy. Okay? It's in Genesis chapter 2, and it's one man and one woman will leave their father and mother and cleave to one another. The Bible commands that. And it illustrates that. Jesus goes on in the New Testament to reference what Jesus or what God did in the garden and saying, this is God's commandment. Now, in the scriptures, you're going to see every other sexual relationship recorded. They're all there. All of them are recorded. There's only one commanded. And it is a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. Every other relationship is recorded, though. There's fornication. That is sex before marriage. There's divorce. There's adultery. There's bestiality, there's homosexuality. All of this is recorded in the scriptures because mankind is broken and because we've gone astray and God says, those are not my perfect will for you. Those are deviations and perversions from my perfect will for you. And so in that, he says, I want you to repent. Repent of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Repent of everything that you've done wrong and come back to where I want you. This is the free will offering of God this very day. Now, let me make sure that you don't think I'm picking on any one group. Since becoming a Christian, you hear, have you had any bizarre 
wanton, impure, wild urges, thoughts, or actions happen in your life? Go ahead and raise your hands. Okay, so half of you are perverts, and the other half are lying perverts <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't raise your hand. We're broken. We're broken people. We're broken. That's why God's given to us his book. He says, guys, this is the way. This is the truth, and this is the life. And if you abide in my word, did you know that Romans 8, no, no, John 8, 31 through 36, write it down in your notes. John 8, 31 through 36, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, when he said that, the people who heard it got so mad at him. They said, we've always been free. We're Abraham's kids, you know. And Jesus is like, whoa, what are you guys talking about? And he said, the one who commits sin is a slave to sin. What Jesus was talking about, if you abide in my word and know the truth, the truth will set you free. This was in pertaining to sin, our relationship sexually, our relationship with our way that we live our lives. It comes from abiding in his word, knowing the truth, and that's where you're set free in our battle. And so I say that to every single person here. No one is without a battle right now. Nobody can look in their rearview mirror and say, I avoided the battle in totality, you liar. No, we all have a battle. We've all had crazy thoughts. You're like, oh no, you know, I'm going to jail. You know, ah, I can't believe I, th you know. Matter of fact, there's a verse in Galatians, maybe chapter five, maybe chapter three, I can't remember. And it says this, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say if you walk in the spirit, you won't have the lust of the flesh. Unfortunately, I have experienced, even when I'm walking in the spirit, I still have the lust of the flesh. It doesn't mean, though, that I have to fulfill that lust. I can take that thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. I can bring it into submission to his word and say, that's not from you, Lord. That's my flesh, and I will not fulfill that. How? Because I'm walking in the spirit. I wish it were so that we could just find ourselves getting saved and completely sanctified in all things, but the reality is we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so the church at Pergamos, Jesus shows up. He's like, guys, you're Christians. This is cool. Good job. You're standing up. Antipas got murdered for faith, but I have two things against you. You've compromised your beliefs. Therefore, you've compromised your behavior. This is where it gets crazy, in the church. You guys have allowed immoral relationships. You've allowed things in marriages to happen that shouldn't happen here. And it's the whole entire gamut, whether it's premarital sex or cohabiting or whether it's fornication, which is premarital sex, or whether it's lust of the eyes or whether it's homosexuality or whatever the case is. It doesn't, if it's not God's perfect design, it needs to be brought into submission to him and he offers it freely to all of us. It's such good news. It's for everybody. And I think it's important that we, the church today, find ourselves on equal ground. Every single person here is in need of a savior did you know there's not one group more in need of the Savior? And did you guys know that? Because sometimes we think so. We think there's people that need, need more, more saving th than us. <laughs> I'm not sure how that works. It doesn't work that way. All of us can be restored. All of us need Jesus. And Jesus is here right now. So let's just read again, starting at verse uh, 12. It says, And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, 
These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is exactly what they needed to hear. They need the word of God. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Stop right there and let's just talk about him. You know what's interesting about Antipas is that if you look into church history, there's not one thing written about him. We have traditions and people have come up with ideas and they're shared and most people have the same storyline. But church history does not record this man. In other words, the only person that knows how he truly suffered and died is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ knows how he suffered and died. And I just kind of trip out on that. Because we like famous people, you know, everyone knows this story and everyone's fired up about Polycarp who we learned about last week and stuff. And Jesus is like, oh, you guys remember Antipas? Now, the tradition goes this way. It was time to worship the Caesars. And Antipas was a Christian, pastor of Pergamos. And he wouldn't do it. And they said, look, dude, you gotta do it. Otherwise, we're gonna put you inside this golden or this brass bowl, B-U-L-L. It's a bowl that we heat up and use to offer incense to false gods. We're gonna put you inside the belly of this bowl, B-U-L-L, and light a fire under it and cook you. You're gonna be Antipas casserole, okay? And he said, go ahead, toss me in. And they put him in the bowl. B-U-L-L, closed it, lit a fire underneath. Can you imagine that? And it got hotter and hotter, 300, 500, 700. It just heat, and he died. And Jesus said, I saw that. I saw that. Because unfortunately, there are stories in this era where men and women would stand up for Jesus and get fed to lions, ripped in half, sawn in two, dipped in hot oil and lit on fire, dipped in wax with a spear through their back and then put into the center of gardens and lit on fire, the light of the world, Roman candles. But there were other men and women, Christians, who said, you know what, I don't wanna go out that way. All I gotta do is say, hail Caesar, and light a little fire to him. All I gotta do is compromise. And there were, there were other stories where men and women, they couldn't do it. And I, I wasn't there. Our compromise is different here in America. We find ourselves Christians, we're all Christians here, and yet there's little things, subtleties that are gonna come across your computer screen, or subtleties that are gonna come across your relationships where you gotta ask yourself, am I gonna, am I gonna stand tall for Jesus and suffer something? Or am I going to give in a little bit to the flesh and find myself compromising in this day? Well, Jesus says there in Pergamos that Satan's throne is there. <laughs> Reminded me of some stories of living in Ashland. Ashland's a pretty dark town, and the spiritual activity there is nuts. And I had a bunch of stories I was going to tell you about Ashland, but we don't have time. You have to come to the 6 p.m. service. I'll put them in there. But uh, anyways, looking at verse 14, 14, he says, But I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Stop right there, eyes up to you. He has two things against the church that they need to tighten up. Number one, he says, you guys have the doctrine and the stumbling block and the counsel of Balaam. Let me tell you the story quickly. You guys know it's number 22, 23, and 24, and, 20, and 31, okay? Numbers, write it down in your notes. There was a king named Balak who hated the children of Israel. And that king hired Balaam, a prophet, to curse the children of Israel. You guys know the story, right? Balaam and Balak, you're not gonna get, get, get confused at all. Trust me, it's easy. Just kidding, you're gonna get confused. So Balaam was hired and God told Balaam, you can't curse the children of Israel. This is not gonna happen, they're blessed. But he kept getting the pot sweetened. Balak's like, I'll give you this much, I'll give you that much. Finally, Balaam said, okay, 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 I'll go do it. And he walked to the edge of the bluff, looking over the camp of the children of Israel, millions in number, and he walked up to curse them. And this is how it went. He said, 
you guys are so blessed. And he went on to this crazy long blessing. He couldn't stop but prophesying blessings over him. And Balak is like, what are you doing, dude? I paid you to curse them. He's all mad about it. And Balaam's like, I don't know what I told you. They're God's people, man. He's like, well, let's try it again from over here. And they went to another side. They went to another like cliff overlooking it. And so Balaam walks up. He's all, I'm going to do it. You guys are so blessed. And he went on and he blessed them again. It's a true story. And Balak's all fired up. What are you doing? You know, and they go, he goes to another, another area, the other side. Let's do it at the other side. And so he gets all fired up. He's like, all right. Now, side note, they were way down below. And the children of Israel were organized in such a fashion where there was a group of people at the top and a group of people at the side and another group of people at this side, millions of them, and another group at this side. And the numbers are given in the Old Testament exactly how many there are, and it actually pictures from an aerial view across. Can you imagine that? An Old Testament picture of what Jesus is doing in his people. And on the third attempt, Balaam gets up there, and he's like, all right, I'm going to do it this time. I got a bunch of cuss words all lined up. They're all going to come out. He's like, you wonderful people. You know, and he begins to bless them again. He can't do it. Finally, after the fourth prophecy, the fourth attempt, the Bible tells us that Balaam, he, he can't do it. He can't curse them. So he goes to Balak, and he says, I do have a plan, though. I know you can take those guys out. He says, there's a bunch of women at the Moabite camp. They don't, they don't follow God. And if you go tell those Moabite women to walk into the camp of the children of Israel and to flaunt their stuff, their ideology and their immorality, if you bring the Moabitess women over there, the guys will fall ultimately into compromise and they'll find themselves subtly being judged by God and walking away. This unholy union, this compromise, and that's exactly what happened in the book of Numbers the Moabitess women came. The men couldn't handle it. They couldn't stand it. I don't know what actually went down. 24,000 dudes lost their life. And God had to save them from that. And so here, in this story, thousands of years later, God says, in your church, there's sexual immorality. There's compromise. There's things that are going on that are not biblical. It's been going on all over the place and forever since time began. It doesn't mean it's okay. You need to repent. And Jesus gives them this understanding that they have to find themselves correcting. Now, let me just make sure you see this because this is, it's important. The church at Smyrna, they were getting their heads cut off. Satan was attacking like a lion, okay? The church at Pergamos, there was no lion attacking, not necessarily. Instead, it was a serpent. It was a snake attack, a sneak attack. It was compromise. And if Satan can't physically harm you or kill you, which he's not going to do in, in America. Do you guys realize that? We're not persecuted in that way. And I believe the same compromise is our biggest weakness in the church today. That there are things that we've just allowed, think, things that you and I have not taken seriously, things that the Lord would, on the scale, say, what, what are you doing? One of the historians, secular historians of that day, wrote about the Christians in Asia Minor. And he knew their attempts at sexual purity, and he couldn't understand it. And he wrote about it. He's like, this is crazy. You guys are crazy. You're very rare. The people who would try their hardest to not go the way of the world. He actually said, and I'll paraphrase his writing, he said, in order to avoid sexual immorality in these days, you would have to swim upstream against the culture very hard. When I read that, I was like, there's no difference here. Man, it is popular to be outside the box. It is popular to affirm relationships that the Bible says, no, that's, that's not right. 
There's forgiveness there. And you have to work hard to stay true to God's word. Verse 14, again, I'm going to read it so you see it here first because I'm just the messenger. This is, this is you and the Lord uh, at church today. He said, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idol and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, this thing of this thing which I hate. Stop right there as up here. The Nicolaitans were also addressed in the church of Ephesus. Remember that? Three, three weeks ago we studied that. The only difference is this. This is important. The church at Ephesus was busy. They had multi-services and they had hoodies and pink porta potty and they were just doing great. And yet Jesus is like, yeah, but you guys have lost your love. I need you guys to, you know, get back to square one. Jesus gave him another uh, commendation though. He said, you guys though here at Ephesus, you hate the Nicolaitans, of which I hate too. See, the church at Ephesus, they, they weren't into the Nicolaitans. The church of Pergamos was. The Nicolaitans were this. They were a group of men who established themselves in the clergy, and they established the people as the laity. They said, there's a difference between us and you. We're the priests. We're the popes. We're the one in charge. We get the robes. We get the hats. We get the incense. We get all the stuff. We're here. You're there. And they, the word Nicolaitan literally means Lord over the people. And Jesus says, I hate that. I hate that. Let me illustrate this from the New Testament. When Jesus began the church, okay, he didn't go to the, the, uh, the rabbinical schools. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He went to Galilee, and he picked peasants, farmers, fishermen, government employees, has-beens, and wannabes. And he said, you guys, come here. I'm going to teach you how to lead the church. I'll make you fishers of men, normal men and women, normal men and women, because he didn't want the laity, the holy union, the reality that some are better than others and some are in charge of others, when in all reality, we're all in submission to Jesus Christ equally. This is something for us to chew on and think through. Now, again, we're at South Beach Church. There's not a clergy and there's not a laity. I am, however, standing on a stage 36 inches taller than you guys. That's just because I'm short, though. I, it's because I, I can't see you if I'm not on this stage. But in reality, we're all equal in this, okay? Different roles, different responsibilities, but an equality. I've had people from time to time say, Luke, I'm submitted to your leadership. I'm submitted to you as a man. You're, I'm submitted to you as a man of God. I'm like, hey, that's cool, man, but let's all make sure we're all looking at Jesus. Don't submit to me. I'm just a dude. As a matter of fact, there's a funny story where Paul and Barnabas, I think they're in Derby, right around this area, and the people begin to promote them as Zeus and Hermes. They say, man, the gods are with us. The gods are with us. And so Barnabas and Paul, they take their robes and they rip their robes showing their chest hairs. Like, we're just dudes. You know, check this out. We're just, don't worship us as gods. We're just normal men. And I think that that was a test for Paul and a test for Barnabas. Because when you're thought of as better than you really are, you got to know how to deflect that upwards. You got to know how to take that accolade and praise and say, no, there's one God. I don't know what was really going on there with the Nicolaitans. You could apply it to our own denominations and some of the different organizations around us. I do know this. Jesus said, I hate it. I hate it. When other people are taking my glory, when other people are standing in the way of me, receiving undue worship. I'm not sure exactly what was happening. Look at verse 16 and 17, and we're going to close with these two verses. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them 
with the sword of my mouth. Uh, in verse 16, Jesus gives us his grace. He says, guys, I love you. I love you, but this sexual immorality, this idolatry, this loose living, this, this non-commitment, you're a Christian, that's awesome, but you don't act like one. You're a Christian, but you're not doing the things a Christian should do. It's actually the key definition of apostasy. It's somebody who claims to be a Christian, yet does the exact opposite of a Christian. That's an apostate Christian. And Jesus says, I, I, I need you to, guys to repent of that. And if you don't, he uses two different pronouns, if that's the right word. He says, I will come to them and fight you. Interesting. I will come to them and fight you. And all I would say is this. Jesus knows who's who. He knows how to fight. He knows what's going on. He knows how to separate the goats from the sheep, the tares from the wheat. He knows that, okay? You don't have to worry about it. I, I just need the Lord to search my heart. And I need to know that the Lord loves you, and he loves me, and he loves everybody. And he offers us an opportunity to repent. Let me tell one story about repentance. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was working for Mike and Mary Kell. I was a coffee house manager. They owned multiple coffee houses, and I managed one of them. And when you're 21 years old, you make some mistakes, right? You make some mistakes. And so I, I made some mistakes as a manager, and I, I kind of blew it and, and went out of bounds, and I, oh, I made some mistakes. And so I drove to Jacksonville, and I sat in Mike's office, and he looked at me, and I looked at him. We looked at the numbers and looked at the stuff, and I made some mistakes, and, and, and he was disappointed, and I, and I was disappointed. And then he said something profound. He said, Luke, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you if you promise to learn from this mistake because I believe God's going to call you from coffee house managing into greater things. He's a Christian. God has a call in your life. And if you learn a lesson here, if you can learn something here and be a better man and be a leader in what God is calling you in, I'll eat this, okay? I will forgive you if, if you learn. And I repented and I learned. I remember leaving that office feeling cared for and loved and humbled and scared as I was leaving. Oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to make the same mistake. And that's how repentance looks. God calls you in your stuff and you're looking at it having that meeting where you're looking at the table going, yeah, there's the numbers. The numbers don't lie. And that's what I've done. And that's where I've gone. That's what I've thought. And man, there's a whole history log on my internet. Ah, oh, you know, I see it all. It's all here. Whatever the case is for you. And the Lord says, I forgive you. I'll forgive you. I forgive you. But I want you to go and sin no more. I want you to be delivered. I'll forgive. That's why you're here. I love you. I love you. And Jesus in verse 16 says, guys, you're here in Pergamos. It's not easy, but you need to repent. You need to repent. Think differently means to repent, which leads to acting differently. He goes on in verse 16. He says, if you don't, I'm going to fight with you with the sword of my mouth. Isn't that crazy? Let me just make sure you know what that means. He says he's going to bring the word of God, and that's going to be your main battle. Can I just say don't battle against this book, okay? Just don't battle against this book. Recently, I spent a couple hours in my office counseling with somebody, and we believe differently in, in what the Bible says about certain things. And uh, at the end, I was getting frustrated and scared and stressed out, two-hour conversation. Then I realized, this isn't my opinion. Just, this, is, this is the book. This is between you and the book. I, I, I'm going to leave here and go get Starbucks. I'm fine. You know, you got to adjust to the book. And when you and I, it's not, it's not your good news. It's not your opinion. It's not your message. Jesus says, I'll take care of it. The book doesn't change. The book doesn't lie. The book doesn't fail. Okay, the book sees right through things. It discerns. It makes things right. And God wants to bless you. Last night I went to Eddie Townsend's house and he cooked up these, these steaks, man. They were so good. And I was eating this steak and I couldn't get enough until I got to the corner part where it's all gristle, you know what I'm saying? And I was just trying my best with this knife to get all the meat on it I could, you know, but there was some stuff on there you're just not supposed to eat, you know what I'm saying? That's just, you're not gonna eat that stuff. And the knife was what is able to help me get all the good, and I got all that steak. But there's some stuff, 
And the Lord will do that through his word. How do you read the Bible? You show up every morning. All right, let's do, clean me up. Let's do surgery. Lord, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to the word of God? Abide in my word, know the truth, the truth will set you free. This is in regards to sin. It's all right here. He wants you to repent. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, if you repent, he's going to give you three things. We're going to end on this thought. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's so cool. I got two ears. How many ears do you get? This is personal. It's, you, you, do you hear? Uh, I've actually sat through services and did, didn't hear. You ever done that before? Darn it. I call it adolescence. <laughs> Young adulthood for some of us. <laughs> Anyways. He says in verse 17, to him who overcomes, number one, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Number two, I will give him a white stone. And number three, on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I'm going to have Ryan come up and lead us in a song, and I'm going to talk about these three gifts. Jesus says to the one who overcomes, number one, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. Manna was a supernatural supply of provision to the children of Israel as they followed God obediently in the wilderness. Every morning they would wake up. It didn't make any sense. It actually meant, what is it? And every morning they would walk out. There's some, here's what we need to get through the day. This is what we need to make it. God's provided for our needs in the midst of our journey. And Jesus says, if you overcome and fight this battle of sin and temptation, whatever it is, whatever immorality is going on, if you decide to trust me, guess what I'll do for you? I'll care for you supernaturally. I'll care for you. Yeah, but I'm so lonely. I got to meet these needs in this way. And man, we've been together for so long and I know it's wrong and I know this is happening. And, and, and Jesus says, do you trust me? What if I lose th this relationship? Or what if I lose that job? Or what if, I, what if I lose this friendship? I can't go on without it. And Jesus says, yes, you can. I will supernaturally meet your needs. Secondly, he says to the one who overcomes, the one who repents, that's you. It's between you and Jesus. He says, to that one, I'm going to give a white stone. Now, in our day, that doesn't mean anything, right? It's like, oh, is this for my landscaping project? What is this? In that day, it meant a lot. If you were to get a white stone in the court of law, hands be on your back, evidence on the table, and the judge were to issue you a white stone, it would mean you were declared innocent. Go. If you were to be given a black stone, going to jail. Jesus says, if you overcome, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. I love you. What you've done is, is wrong. You're forgiven though. If you overcome. Third thing Jesus says is on that white stone will be a new name that nobody knows but you. Wow. This speaks of intimacy. It's pretty easy to identify the sins of the world know that God wants there to be change. It's pretty easy to identify the grace of God demonstrated in other people's lives. Did you know that God right now, though, says, I got a white stone for you, just you, with your name on it. I see your sin. I see you. I see, what, I see it. I see the compromise, Luke. And it's taking you down the wrong road. And if you overcome, I'm going to give you a white stone. You're free. You're innocent. And it's got a new name, a new, a new description when Abram 
gave his life to the Lord. His name was changed to Abraham. His wife, Sarai, was changed to Sarah. Simon was changed to Peter. Saul was changed to Paul. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel means God is my governor. God loves to change people's names. He loves to take the names that Satan gives you, failure, reject, fool, hated, has been. He takes those names, he says, nah, no. You're beloved, you're forgiven, you're restored. You're my son, you're my daughter. He changes names. You're not gonna get a new name today, Bill or Joe or Fran, you know? I believe God wants to actually give names this morning. I'm gonna ask him to do it in just a second. I'm gonna ask him to speak a descriptive word over you. What he sees in Jesus. Jesus loved to give nicknames. I actually give nicknames to my closest friends. Maybe if you have kids, you've got nicknames for your kids smelly and dirty and hairy or whatever. Maybe you got nicknames for, for your spouse. Just like little, you know, little, it, it speaks of intimacy and closeness, affection. And this is so cool. Jesus is speaking this to the church at Pergamos, the church that had a sect of leaders over it that were allowing immorality and calling it church. And instead of Jesus running from that church, he goes right to it and says, hey, guys, guys, let's get back in the book. It's not the heart, it's right there. And if you do, I'm gonna forgive you. White stone, forgiven. New name, because I love you. If you're a Christian here, you're hearing this right now. You're actually saying, yeah, I need that. I need that in my imperfections and my sins. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ask you guys to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask God to give you a new name right now. You may want to jot it down. As you repent. And as you seek the Lord in His Word. He might give you two or three names. I call you the overcoming one, redeemed. Father, right now in Jesus' name as we're here, here we are. We pray, God, that you would be honored in our, our handling of the scriptures and that we would let your word, Lord, cut us, cut away that fat, that stuff, that gristle. It's not for us. There's no meat there. Cut away that stuff. Exposing our hearts, Lord. Maybe there's somebody here in your heart so bitter. It's just bitter, right? You, know, you came in and you knew, you knew it was the right thing to do, but you're just so shut down. You're so shut down and you just want to live your life for the glory of God. But you haven't been doing it and you, you just want to repent and say, Lord, your way, your way, forgive me. And the Lord would say, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. The white stone is yours. Lord, would you right now begin to speak names? 
to your people right now. Just clear your mind and just listen. He's gonna, it's not going to be that hard. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to try hard. Just open your mind. Lord, speak names right now. Let your daughters know, Lord, what you think of them. Let your sons know, Lord, what you think of them in Jesus' name right now. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, speak to us, we pray. We need your grace, Lord. We trust in you. We present ourselves to you, Lord. Give us those new names even right now, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And as we come to the table of communion, we celebrate you, Jesus, for your great love for us. You know us. You know everything that's going on. And you bore our sins upon the cross and you rose victoriously from the tomb. You've given us your spirit freely. And so now, Lord, may every broken heart be healed. May every bitter chain be broken in Jesus' name. May every captive be set free. And may this be a brand new day. Right now, brand new day. Start over. A do-over. A do-over right now. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We take communion now. Believer's communion. And maybe you're here and you got into church and you're not saved. Now's the time to submit your life to Jesus Christ. Let him save your soul. You can take communion if you let him save you. This is believer's communion as we celebrate and proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.